Please be seated. Would you pray with me as we begin and ask God's blessing, ask him to lead us in our time together. Lord God, you are omniscient. You see and know all things, past, present, and future. You're the God of creation who made all things. And you're the God of recreation who is making all things new. Lend us some of your wisdom today. Through your Holy Spirit, bring clarity to help us understand your intention in your word. Show us, Lord, what you intend for us to see and to know about your judgment. Reveal yourself in your word today and in us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, so believe it or not, we're moving towards the end of our teaching series, Famous Last Words. Uh, we're on the book of Revelation. And um, I'm reminded, if you go back and read in Psalm 13, there is an ancient lament that I think most of us can relate to in one way or another. And the lament is, how long, Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? We find that same thing echoing in Revelation chapter 6, where we see uh, under the altar the saints, the martyred saints of God. And it says, they shouted to the Lord and said, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? How long? That's a justice question. How long? It's a question that has pretty much a, a history that goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity. It began with the fall. Humans giving into temptation from the tempter himself, Satan. And, and this question, how long, reverberates down through history. It's kind of like this big cosmic shockwave from a nuclear explosion. It just goes on and on and on through humanity. Where's the justice? How long do I have to wait for it? How long for the martyred? How long for those to have their day in court, those who were tortured and killed for their faith? The poor cry out, how long until those who deprived us and left us to starve and struggle when they could have shown their love? How long until they're judged for their inaction? Those who suffered because of their country of origin or the color of their skin, and they cry out, how long until the promise of true equality actually comes true? How long until the justice of that is done? Indigenous people cry out, how long? The neglected children cry out, how long? The abused and degraded cry, how long? How long before judgment? How long before justice? How long until that happens? When is it ultimately served? Romans 18, or 
8.18 even tells us that the earth itself, creation, cries out to be set free and to be vindicated. Eugene Peterson says, hurt people want relief. The bullied want fairness. The pushed around want dignity. How long is one of those questions that causes many of our young people to lose love for God's church? There is a sense that there is justice needed out there. And why isn't anybody doing anything about it? Why isn't the church knocking it flat? Why isn't justice the first thing on our sacred plate every morning at breakfast? Why not? And they just want to get out there and do something about it. I get that. They're right. The church is supposed to be doing its share of dealing with justice in the world. All you have to do is read uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. You know, being judged for what we do or do not do in terms of helping the poor and clothing the naked and visiting the prisoners and all of those things that it talks about. Or the words of Micah 6.8 that calls us to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with our God. We're called to live justly and to do justice in the world. But ultimately... We are not the ones who enact ultimate justice. And we will not be the ones who answer fully the question of how long. The ancient question of how long gets answered quite readily in the book of Revelation, actually. In Revelation 19 and 20, it's Judgment Day. I feel kind of like there should be the music from the Terminator under that or something, you know, similar. But it's Judgment Day. And there are several things that are judged in this passage. And and, uh, we're going to look at some of them today. They all have to do with facing the music. Specifically, there are four things that happen. Four judgments that take place. There is the defeat of the beast. The dragon who is jailed. Satan's final judgment. And the judgment of the dead. And we're going to look at just two of those today. Uh, Otherwise, we'd have to leave a whole lot out. And I think there's some important stuff here, some things that we really need to kind of process today. Let's start with this defeat of the beast. Christians under persecution in that first century, they must have been asking themselves that same question. How long? How long is this going to go on? I mean, they would be very aware that Jesus had promised his disciples that he would return soon. They would be waiting for that day, especially as things got worse and worse in the Roman Empire. They would be waiting for Jesus to come back. And then the government began to impose more and more measurements of persecution. They began to insist that they would, each, each person would appear before a statue of the emperor or maybe a statue of Jupiter and burn incense to the emperor as God. And it even seems like those churches in Asia Minor, that seven churches that we're talking about in the book of Revelation, it even seems like under the influence of the Roman governors and enforced by the Roman soldiers who had built a cult around this, 
it seems like that persecution was even worse outside of Rome than it was inside of Rome at times. And so John shows these Christians in the first century that the Roman rule and all its parts, all its systems, it was going down. It was going to be done. Now, you might remember we talked about the, the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Beast from the sea symbolizing mostly Rome and its rule and its rulers, and the beast from the land, which John starts calling here the false prophet. It, it symbolizes all these systems of Rome and the, the things that support this idolatrous pagan empire. And not only that, it, it symbolizes... Uh, other systems down through history that have tried to run themselves in the same way, exploiting, persecuting people, living off the backs of people, living as if there is no God, even being anti-God. You know, as soon as we start reading the book of Revelation, there's a word that comes up. It's one that leaps to mind, antichrist. You know that word? Doesn't it come to mind as soon as you start thinking about Revelation? Here's another wordplay on that. How many times does the word Antichrist appear in the New Testament? Just shout it out if you have a guess. Anybody? Two? Okay, two's not a bad guess. How many? Anybody else? Three? Ten? All right. Somebody said five. Four. It appears four times in the New Testament. It appears three times in 1 John and once in 2 John. So we are talking about John here, just not where we think it is. How many times do you think it appears in Revelation? Zero. doesn't appear in Revelation. There are lots of implications for that here. But that actual word just doesn't appear here. But John uses it in a very... In, in two ways, really. He uses it in a general sense to re refer to anybody who is against Christ. Antichrists, and you'll see that plural in many places. And more specifically, he refers to people who would substitute themselves for Jesus' place. Those who would put themselves in the place of God. And you get more specific there. And so... Any of Rome's persecuting rulers, from Nero to Diocletian, they could, any one of them, they could have been described as the Antichrist. So what happens to the beast? No, we talked about the beast. We spent a couple of chapters talking about the beast. Well, I want to read Revelation 19 and verses 11 through 21. And if, if you have your Bible, I really encourage you to read along with me this morning because there are too many th words here to put up on the screen, but I think you get a lot out of it if you read through it. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's a rather gruesome picture, isn't it? It really is. Alfred Hitchcock has nothing on this. Heavenly army, a giant war about to happen. A fiery lake of burning sulfur, birds feasting on flesh. Now, we need to remind ourselves that there is a ton of symbolic language being used here. And, and first of all, I, I want to kind of track back um, to verse 13. And it talks about the one who is named the Word of God. Well, who is that? Jesus, you're exactly right. That's Jesus, the Word of God. You know, there's, there's kind of a, an interesting thing going on here because, you know, Jesus doesn't come out, you know, with a label on his shirt that says Jesus. <laughs> you know, here Jesus is being called something other than his name. Think of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush and, and, and who is this presence at the burning bush? This is Yahweh, yes, but he identifies himself as I am. I am who I am, the great I am. And Jesus here is identified in kind of the same way as the word of God. And it says his robe is dipped in blood. Now this has always been an interesting discussion to me. Whose blood is it dipped in? Because Modern evangelical thought would have you believe that it's dipped in the blood of his enemies. Is that right? Well, let me ask you, whose blood pays for your sins? Is it the blood of the enemies? Is it the blood of the enemies who defeat the laws of sin and death? Is it the enemy blood that they defeats the enemy Satan? 
It's not, is it? It's Jesus' own blood, which he shed on the cross, which caused the defeat of our foes. Now, I want you to notice something about the army. It says that, that this army that rides behind Jesus is dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, it says Jesus has on a robe. It doesn't describe it, but we can only assume that it's the same robe as they've got on. Well, where did we hear about that before? In the earlier part of chapter 19, last week, we spent quite a lot of time talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the suits that the riders of this army are wearing are not armor. They're wearing wedding suits. Now, who comes to war dressed for a wedding? That's nuts. But how did Jesus defeat the enemy? He was a lamb dressed as a lion. This is not the might of armor and the might of armies that defeats the enemy. It's lamb power. It's lamb power that defeats the enemy. This army is dressed for a wedding, not for a war. And what's coming out of Jesus' mouth? <laughs> Isn't that weird? It says that coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. With a sword coming out of his mouth. Can you imagine that? You know, this, how's he going to strike down? We're going to do this. We're going to tell everybody's dead, right? We're going to just slash until we got them all. We're not talking about a physical sword. We're talking about the Word of God, aren't we? Isn't it the sword of the Spirit, which Paul tells us to put on with our spiritual armor? Isn't it the sword of God that Hebrews 4.12 tells us that is the Word of God, living and active, alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And here's the important part in this situation. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so the armies have gathered. Satan's beasts have gathered. The dragon has gathered. And the sword that Jesus uses in the battle is his own word. This is the weapon of Christ. His own word and his own sacrifice. He who has the armies of heaven chose instead to defeat the enemy by giving himself. Well, that's not the Armageddon we were experiencing or waiting for, is it? We've been counting on a big battle here. We've been waiting for it. Revelation says, And then I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war, to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, 
So we have the kings of the earth. We have the armies gathered together, just as they were summoned by the three demons that we read about earlier on that went out to summon them to the battleground, to the plains of Megiddo, maybe. But you know what happened? There's no battle. It doesn't even say that they clashed. I mean, we were looking and no tactical nuclear weapons were set off. No rail guns were fired. No energy pulse weapons were used. It says, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. So before one missile or one fiery dart is fired, the leaders are captured. And what happens to them? Well, in verse, uh, verse 20, it says, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, the burning sulfur here is probably meant to remind us of the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a final judgment on the city itself. So the defeat of the beast is the first thing. It's the first judgment here. But just as these, these two beasts were sentenced to this fiery death, Satan also gets a sentence at the beginning of chapter 20. It's Satan's turn. Satan's already positionally defeated at the cross. You know, it's all over except the sweeping up. But now the final end is near. Let's look at that. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. In pop culture, we give Satan way too much power. Movies and televisions, they make Satan look like he's invincible. They make it look like Satan has unlimited power. But in reality, because of the cross, Satan is a defeated enemy with little power in comparison to God. It doesn't mean that he's not dangerous. But we have to remember that Satan was not God or a God. He was a created being like all the other angels. He was an angel, a messenger of God who rebelled and was cast down. You know, in some religions, like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, Satan and Jesus are considered spirit brothers. And, uh, you know, they're like identical twins. And in their mythology, on a star or a planet called Kolob, there was this huge power struggle, and Satan and Jesus fought a war together against each other, and Jesus won and became the victor and the savior. And Satan lost and was cast down and became the devil. Now, that's their mythology. That's their background. Other religions, like Taoism, yin, yang, you, you know those symbols, of that little balance symbol? Well, it's meant to symbolize a balance between light and darkness, between good and evil, as if one needs the other to exist. That's what it means. 
But none of these things is true. Satan is not equal to Jesus, and he has no need of darkness in order to exist in light. You know, it's, it's really interesting that when Satan is sentenced to the pit or to the abyss, an angel easily grabs him, easily seizes him. And it says the angel has this big chain and he's going to bind him up. And it says he has the keys to the abyss. He's been granted special authority by God. Now, you might have noticed when we were back in Revelation 9, it said that the star that fell from the sky, which is, seems to be talking about Satan, it says that he has the key to the abyss. But not anymore. That authority has been taken away. Now the angel of God has the key. So here's Satan's first sentence. And I say first because there's another one coming. But his first sentence is a thousand years locked and sealed in the abyss. The abyss is an unknowable, deep, and boundless place. Abyss comes from a Greek word that means bottomless or without boundary. It's the same place we get the idea of a bottomless pit that comes right from here. Now Luke seems to suggest that the abyss is the dwelling place of demons. Romans 10 says that it's the realm of the dead. So it tells us a few things, but there are a lot of unanswered questions as to exactly what we're looking at here. And many people uh, make a parallel between the abyss or the pit and hell itself. Now we're told that Satan is locked away to prevent the deceiver from deceiving the nations for a period of time. It's, it's like a prison sentence. He's been sentenced to a thousand years. The word millennium that you find here, and millennium's pretty big in end times discussions. The word millennium that you read here is a Latin word. It just means 1,000. That's all it means. And it says at the end of 1,000 years, he'll be released for a short period of time. Now, next week, we're going to start with the millennium and what that might mean. And we're going to continue to look at the judgment. And we'll look at what happens to Satan in his second and final sentence. And we're also going to look at the resurrection of the dead for the great white throne judgment. Very early Christian interpretation, as well as modern interpretation, looks at chapter 19 and sees the return of Jesus in it. I mean, think about it. Here's Jesus coming in power on the white horse of victory, coming with the armies of heaven. Jesus returns in power. Now, we pointed out before that Jesus is not in any way, shape, or form intimidated by Satan or his followers. And it doesn't matter to Jesus whether it's Satan showing up in the desert in the wilderness with promises to try to tempt him or with armies on the plains of Megiddo or spiritual armies in the heavenlies. It doesn't matter. Jesus defeats them easily. They're no match for him at all. You may wonder, why all this judgment towards the end? Because we've got a few more to go through next week. 
Why all this judgment? You know, justice and judgment go hand in hand. For justice to prevail, there has to be an end point. There has to be a time when judgment takes place. When something happens, when justice is served as a result of the sin performed. And here it is. It's the answer to that question. How long? How long? The answer is right now. No more waiting. Right now. Jesus is the judge. And in these chapters, we see Jesus as the word of God. We see Jesus as the king of kings and the Lord of lords because he is the absolute Lord and the absolute king. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? What God do I serve? I serve the king of kings. I serve the Lord of lords. I serve the word of God. The word of God, it says, by the way, kills the enemy those who will not follow Christ. Now, there's more judgment related to that. That'll come next week. But I want to give you a little takeaway homework assignment for this week. If you've been on Facebook this morning, you've already seen this. I put it up there so you'd have the questions. Um, But I'd like to encourage you this week to do a couple of things. First of all, read chapters 19 and 20. It's good stuff. It's exciting stuff. And I want to encourage you to meditate on the absolute power of God over evil and what that means for you specifically as a follower of Christ. Because that's pretty important when we're looking at battles, when we're looking at struggles, and when we're looking at difficulties in life. And then the last thing is to ask yourself the question, because we're going to get into this next week, What does it mean to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? We'll talk about that more next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we are humbled when we see the extent of your power as it's displayed through your Son, Jesus. Through this week, I ask you to reveal yourself and and remind us of what it means that Jesus surrendered all that power for a short time. He did it to die in our place on the cross. Lord, help us to grasp the enormous love that motivated that gift. May we bring you honor in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.